This ring is a copy of a similar ring worn by a Central European actor. His name was Bela Lugosi. Now, that, that's the correct way of pronouncing it. But that was probably a little bit too much for people to take. And so he became immortalized under the name of Bela Lugosi. He made his name, as indeed did I, in the playing of a certain rather strange Transylvanian nobleman. Might interest you to know that Transylvania still exists, and I've been there. And the name of that nobleman, of course, immortalized in one book and known throughout the world now, was quite simply the word Dracula. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying, you know, violently? I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. The following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. Okay, quick shout out before we get the show on the road. I gotta say, happy 7th anniversary to a podcast that is within this network, uh, The Melting Pat. Hosted by, obviously, Pat. And I'm pretty sure most of you figured that out already. Uh, anyways, yeah, seven years with the Next Level Network. That's awesome, dude. Um, congrats for not getting yourself fired. I should say yet. Because if the rumors are true, and you have been talking shit about the boss, a.k.a. Ben, um, should I be saying congrats, or should I be saying, well, it was nice knowing you. Off to the gallows you go. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, seven seven year anniversary for the Melting Pat. So wanted to give a quick shout out before saying this from the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero. I think this is the third time I'm talking about this dude on the show. Once about his dog and once about his appearance in 1931. Well, we're doing it again. Welcome back, everyone, to What Lurks Lurks Behind Behind. Podcast Podcast Zero. Zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul, talking about another member of the undead. It's actually the same guy I've talked about twice before. I'm doing another Dracula movie. This is becoming a thing. I've noticed that, like, right before I jump into, like, the Halloween season, it seems like I do a Dracula episode. 
So, but yeah, this time around, 1958, movie known as Horror, Horror of Dracula. Dracula. Yeah, it's a Hammer film this time. I think it's actually the first Hammer film I'm reviewing, so this is kind of cool. Anyways, before we get into that, we got some big news. Whoo! Amazing news. This is like, drop everything you're doing right now and listen to me because this is some fucking awesome news. Okay, so <laughs> let's be fair. It's awesome for me because I've already talked about the first movie of this universe, I guess you would say. Uh, the movie from 2005, Constantine. I've told you guys on this show, it's the highest downloaded episode I've had. It's nearing 300 downloads, which, okay, for some people that's nothing, but for me that's like... What the fuck just happened? Well, anyways, so yeah, out of the blue, Warner Brothers drops a bomb on us. And they're making a sequel to that movie. Yes, that Constantine. Uh, we're talking Keanu Reeves. Remember the, the movie that starred Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weiss came out in 2005. Well, apparently 17 years later, we're now returning to that universe with Keanu Reeves making the comeback as John Constantine. Constantine, according to the Sandman. But anyways, well, no. Uh, yeah, so he's definitely coming back. Here's here's the thing. So it's not a reboot. It's not a requill or a he... Well, it's a sequel, but it's not a prequel, requill. It's not... You know how they're coming up with all these stupid terms about what these movies are these days? It's none of that. It's just a direct sequel. Not a reboot. None of that shit. Uh, including the fact that the people behind the camera are returning as well. We're talking Francis Lawrence as the director. Coming back for another Constantine movie. That's awesome. Um, Akiba Goldsman is... Writing the script. Wrote the script for the first one. Um, now there's other names being added to this that weren't a part of the first film. J.J. Uh, Abrams being one of them. He will be one of the producers on the film. Along with Hannah Mengele. She will also be producing with the sequel. And Goldsman of course is producing. Um, so long live Keanu. Because he's returning to the DC world. As the one and great John Constantine again. This is awesome. Like, I'm super stoked about this. Um, Constantine is a movie that I've not only talked about on this podcast about, but on DC Primetime as well. Uh, when I did a sit-down with Rob Martin of that podcast, and we talked about both Constantine and Swamp Thing. So, Constantine is something that, like, is kind of partial to me especially like i said it's the most highest downloaded episode of my podcast so i'm very excited about this it's like when the sequel comes out it will definitely be an episode on this podcast provided i'm not dead by then but um <laughs> i gotta stop saying that because one of these days is gonna happen and be like shit i called it didn't i um but yeah so constantine coming back 17 years later well probably be 18 by the time the movie gets released no release date as of yet so but in 2023 uh keanu will still be returning in sort of a way uh to the world of cyberpunk 2077 
because recently announced there's an additional DLC coming out called Phantom Liberty. And that will be with the return of Johnny Silverhand and V. So Keanu is keeping busy, which also let's... Okay, let's go into this for a bit. This is more a cyberpunk section of the show as opposed to horror. We'll get to the horror all in time. Don't worry. But um, So I'm going to keep this part simple because eventually... Once this has been out long enough, it may actually be a full episode dedicated on like to like I'll be dedicating it to the season of this show. I'm talking Cyberpunk Edge Runners. Um I finished the 10 episode 10 episode season in one sitting. It's not hard. Uh 10 episodes each about 20 to 22 minutes long. So you know, it's about four, four and a half hours total if you know you're not taking breaks or whatever. Anyways, I will definitely say I sure am hoping the show gets greenlit for more seasons. I think this is a really awesome thing. It's sort of like Prey. Um, What I would like to see from the show, should they further it, you know, with more seasons, more different characters set in different time frames. Uh, This time, this has nothing to do, well, it has to do with the game, but it doesn't in terms of... The characters here is sort of like Star Wars Rebels where we took like six new characters and we made the fans love them so they wanted more. Well, with this, we it's about five or six characters totally new to the universe. We haven't dealt with them before, but by the time the ten episodes were done, we loved them. We wanted more of it. Uh, I kind of hope they do that. If you're, if Cyberpunk Edge Runners is going to give us a season two, give us six new characters, a new story, show us something, a different aspect of Night City. Because, quite honestly, that's what the whole Cyberpunk 2077 Cyberpunk Edge Runners universe is based on is Night City. Um, gorgeous animation, a great story, interesting characters, and some small cameos as well. There was a few faces that popped up that, hey, we saw those in the game, but it didn't ruin anything for the game, right? Um, And speaking of the game, I mean, okay, so I talk about gorgeous animation. Night City in this animated world looks just like it does in the game. I mean, there is screen for screen, like, they're like perfect. Like, what you saw in the game? Well, you're right there in this animation animated like series as well. Like there's a video on YouTube that like highlights how many locations in the game were completely recreated from pixel to animated screen, uh, including V's apartment, which, okay. So the thing about V's apartment, because this was brought up in several different places on the internet, people were saying, Oh my God, does David, the character, the main character in this, series did him and his mom live in V's apartment technically no because as it was explained i think i read it in an article actually there's different mega complexes that are basically like apartment complexes and whatnot they're all carbon copies of each other so technically even though the apartment looks like spot on perfect to the same as the one you start off in in Cyberpunk 2077, they're actually different apartments, but their layouts are exact. Um, there's a part in 
edge runners that we are outside Judy's apartment. That we don't actually see Judy. Uh, spoilers. Um, <laughs> you don't actually see Judy, but you do see her apartment, and it's like it's pixel for pixel. It's like the same thing. Um, we see landmarks like Lizzie's Bar, Afterlife, uh, Riot. There's like different places, all that show up in the animated series that we saw in the game and they're you know line for line like perfect recreations uh i might also mention for those of you who are familiar with the score that came from the games some of those musical cues are showing up in this series like i i've probably listened to the score a little too much um it I'll be honest with you, when, when I'm doing my other job, the one that's kind of boring, and sometimes, I, like I always have music playing in the background, the Cyberpunk 2077 score is one that I go to frequently. I just love the whole, I love the sound of it and everything like that, and it's a very calming soundtrack. Um, so I listen to it probably a little too much if there's such a thing. So anyways, when I'm watching the series and I'm hearing certain musical cues coming up and I can even like name them by title and I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, the bells of Laguna bend and stuff. like, And it's like, yeah, I might've listened to it just a little too much, but it is what it is. Um, it was awesome. Nonetheless, just to hear some of those musical cues, you know, popping up. And I mean, this series does what the game did before it. And that is, it gives so many nods and nice little, you know, salutes to all the cyberpunk influences that came before the video game. Like, we're talking Ghost in the Shell, Akira, The Matrix, Blade Runner, Johnny Mnemonic, Lucy, Robotech, um, Ex Machina. I mean, there's the list goes on, right? Like, William Gibson would be happy with this. Um, overall, it's a great and quick season to binge through like like i said it doesn't take long definitely worth the wait you know and i heard so much shit before it got released you know people saying oh i wonder if it's gonna glitch out i wonder if there'll be frames missing i wonder you know because obviously when cd project red released the game yeah it didn't have the best release and as much as i didn't have a problem with it i know a lot of people did so i'm not gonna sit here and act like it didn't happen it did um but when this series was coming out and, you know, people were making shitty comments online, I was like, oh, come on, knock it off. It was so well worth the wait. Like, it just, it, it, I really want more of this. And I hope, I hope they will focus a bit more on this and give us another season. Because there's a whole comic book series as well. Um, in an early birthday announcement for myself, um... My mother got me the four graphic novels that are available right now, and I'll be binging them probably after I'm done recording this. Like, I can't wait to read these books. Like, the stories are great that are coming from the cyberpunk world. So, I mean, again, based all on the tabletop board game of way back when, Cyberpunk 2020. And I know, yes, this uh, is a horror podcast. I will be focusing very hard on the world of Hammer Vampires very soon. But one more bit of cyberpunk news to announce because I'm extremely excited about this. So I'm sharing it with you all. Because I remember back in February, I heard about, you know, and Ridley Scott has teased that he may even direct this. He's a definite for producing duties, but... um, 
directing. Nobody's really sure yet. Although now I'm almost thinking it's going to happen that he may at least direct the pilot of this because Amazon has now made it official. Blade Runner 2099 is a go. It is an absolute go. It will be premiering on Amazon Amazon Prime. And I now have a reason to live. I'll add that. Um, yeah, the series is going to Prime. Not sure on any release date yet as of now. I Myself, personally, I'm thinking 2023 or early 2024. It depends on how much you know the post-production has to play into this. How far they were, because... We originally heard about this in November of 2021 when Black Lotus first appeared on Crunchyroll and I forget where else was. I know it had to, it was sort of like Chucky how Chucky's on Sci-Fi and USA it was Crunchyroll and oh shit I can't remember where Black Lotus also was showing up anyways um but yeah it was on two different networks anyways when Black Lotus was first premiered you know we heard about this potential for a live action series in the black in the blade runner world and whatnot and then the following february was when we heard a bit more about it specifically in regards to the amazon would be the ones who would distribute and ridley scott was talking about possibly directing and then all of a sudden it went quiet we haven't heard anything since until now so Amazon has fully ordered the series and now it's just a matter of playing that waiting game till its release, which thank God there's so many other things coming out that are going to keep me distracted for a while because I'm like, I want this badly. I'm pretty sure this time around, no Harrison Ford though. I mean, I think that's safe to assume, right? I mean, unless, I don't know, unless he's a replicant. Or maybe a vampire? Yeah, let's get to the vampire thing of the ball. Blade Runner 2099, guys, is coming. So I'm happy about this. But this is a horror podcast. Well, horror sci-fi. Whatever. Um, But, I mean, I said. I said we were going to talk about vampires. I said we were going to talk about Dracula. So I think it's time to start heading in that direction. So let's do the time the tra- the timer trail out. <laughs> Wow, that one was funny. I'm leaving that blooper in there. You guys can have a laugh at that. Trailer timeout. And when we return, it's going to be a time of gothic beauties, British accents, holy water and crucifixes, and Christopher Lee kicking ass before some of us were even born. I know I wasn't even around when this came out, so (laughs) it is what it is. But thank God it's still around. Horror of Dracula, when we return. Back in a splat, kids. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise.
please try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is someone here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. By the way, what's this? Like, I keep seeing this on the internet. So I'm going to throw this out there and hopefully it's real that apparently October 18th, 2022, McDonald's Happy Meals are bringing back the Halloween buckets that like we had when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I keep, the thing is, is like I know to take the internet with a grain of salt because I always see these things and they never... You know, they never happen and this and that, whatever. And a lot of times it's just someone screwing around with an image. And anyways, so yeah, apparently this is a thing. And we are getting the Halloween buckets, the little trick-or-treat bucket things that McDonald's used to have years ago when I was a kid growing up and you get the Happy Meal and you got the little, it was like a little ghost, little goblin, little pumpkin, whatever. Apparently these are coming back. It's pretty been cool. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it at a family level because I'm talking about a family-related thing. But no, <laughs> you get my point. Um, yeah, so apparently, if it's true, McDonald's is bringing that back. That's awesome. Okay. Now, vampires. Vampires done the right way. Okay, I'm going to put this out there now about this review I don't have a whole lot of negative to say about this at all. So this is for probably the next 25 minutes to a half hour. This is going to be me completely in love with this movie. Just saying. The movie is Horror of Dracula from 1958. I don't, I, and you know, I was thinking about it. I don't think I've done many movies from the 50s. I've done a ton from the 80s, obviously, and a lot of recent ones in the 2000s and 2010s. I've done some 1990s films. But when I was thinking about it, I'm like, I don't think I've done a whole lot from the 50s. I did a lot from the 30s and the 40s last year when I did the Universal Studio Monsters event for Halloween and whatnot. So, but yeah. I realized I have not done a lot of movies from the 50s. As a matter of fact, this might even be one of the first ones, if not the first one. Sorry, the brain's not working that well that I can remember all 128 episodes I've done before this. 
Anyways, Horror of Dracula was first premiered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the United States, May 7th, 1958. Some, I read some articles said May 8th, some said May 7th. I went with the 7th because, it, I don't know. I wasn't alive. I can't tell you. I honestly don't know. <laughs> I'm going based on what I read. Uh, two weeks later in the UK, it was released uh, May 21st, 1958. I believe that was the London premiere. And then a couple days later, it had like UK-wide release, whatever. But anyways, those are the two premiere dates for the United States and for the UK. Canada, when I was looking up Canada, it gave me the DVD release date. But it wouldn't give me theatrical. So, again, I wasn't even um, conceived at the time. I wasn't even a thought at this time. Um, as a matter of fact, don't even think my mother was alive yet. So, yeah. I honestly can't tell you what happened in 1958. Maybe Canada saw it. Maybe we didn't. It was released through Hammer Film Productions. And I'm doing this before the director because Hammer is something I haven't really talked a whole lot about on this show. And it deserves a little love. So the whole Hammer Film Productions was founded in 1934. But really, let's be fair, their greatest successes didn't come until the 1950s to the 1970s when they had their horror boom. Um, and, and that was all the films that were within the gothic horror element. Um, and the, they did fantasy films as well. That's when they really had their boom was in the 50s to the 70s. Uh, after the 70s, unfortunately, funding and interest both seemed to lack for the production company. And I mean, the thing is, is there, there's always been Hammer film fans, but they really weren't producing anything new i think the last time there was something new from hammer up to that point was like 1980 and then especially in the 80s like this is how i discovered hammer was tv okay so here in the windsor detroit area we had wxon channel 20 channel 20 had every saturday afternoon in the 80s they would have a double chiller thriller and a lot of the times the focus was on Hammer films. That's how I discovered a lot of these films, including this one. Um, but that's a, a lot of the older Hammer films that obviously they could post, you know, they could broadcast on TV without having to edit the shit out of it, too. I mean, this one in particular, there's not much gore, so they could get away with showing a lot of this movie without having to edit it. Um, at least they didn't have to edit it heavily, let's say that. But so, yeah, the 80s was basically that. 90s didn't produce anything. It wasn't until 2007 when uh, the ownership changed over and Simon Oaks basically took over as CEO. Uh, finally, we would start to see films coming from Hammer Film Productions again. We're talking like in 2008, they produced the film Beyond the Rape. And then after that, they've added other films. There's films like Let Me In, which is basically the Let the Right One In remake. Um, what the woman in black with uh, Harry Potter? You got the movie The Quiet Ones. They've done that, and then in 2019 they did they produced the film The Lodge. So that's basically in a more or less really condensed version of the history of Hammer films. That's how it you know came to be, where it went, what happened, and whatnot. The 80s in particular is when I really discovered a lot of the Hammer films. Like I said, Channel 20 in Detroit, 
every Saturday afternoon had double chiller thrillers. That's how I came to learn about a lot of them. Um, the Horror of Dracula, also known as Dracula, and I will talk about that in a bit. But anyways, was directed by Terrence Fisher, uh, famously known for his work on several Hammer films. Uh, films that include The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Brides of Dracula, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. It's also known as Jekyll's Inferno. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera from 1962. The Horror of It All, The Gorgon. Uh, he did Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and The Devil Rides Out. Among many... He had 65 film credits to his resume, and a good good chunk of those were Hammer films. Uh, the Curse of Frankenstein, which was also the first Frankenstein film to be done in color, uh, was the first Hammer film that Terrence would direct. And it was because of the success of that film that led Terrence to eventually directing this Dracula remake that he passionately wanted to do. At the time, the studio wasn't completely sure um, he was able to convince them, but at first, this was not high on their priority list. And I will also note that Terrence did pass away in, uh, in June of 1980. It was June 18th to be specific. He was at the age of 76. So he lived a good full life and he gave us a lot. I know some people think that 76 is young. It would have been nice to have him around for a couple more years. But anyways, he left an amazing legacy behind, and it's awesome. He's definitely one of the uh, front runners in the Hammer films uh, like catalog. A lot of people know Terrence from those films. This film, Horror of Dracula, was written by Jimmy Sangster and based on the novel by Bram Stoker. Uh, Jimmy wrote a lot. Again, kind of like Terrence. I, you'll notice with Hammer films... And kind of, and I think this is why the argument with the whole Rob Zombie wife thing bothers me sometimes. It's because production companies, directors, and whatnot, actors, they like to stay within their circle of friends, right? And with the Hammer films, it's the same thing. They had a lot of directors and writers they constantly went back to, and Jimmy was one of them as well. He wrote for um, various horror films, obviously movies like The Revenge of Frankenstein, Blood of the Vampire. The Crawling Eye, which I don't think that's a Hammer film, but he did write for that one. Uh, Jack the Ripper, The Hellfire Club, uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which is a Hammer film, Scream of Fear, and Who Slew Auntie Rue. That's just to name a few. He also worked on a lot of TV as well, um, including series like The Six Million Dollar Man, uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker, and Wonder Woman. He did two episodes of Wonder Woman. Um, he passed away in 2011, though, at the age of 83. Moving on to our producer now, Anthony Hines. Uh, Anthony was, uh, much like the last two names I've just mentioned, he was a producer and a writer for many of the Hammer films. Uh, but he also did a lot of crime and drama films as well. He, he worked hand-in-hand, hand, sometimes with Hammer, sometimes not with Hammer. Um, he did films like To Have and To Hold, The Black Widow, no, not that Marvel character, you know, there was a Black Widow well before that. Um, he worked on Terror Street, X the Unknown, The Curse of Frankenstein, The Camp on Blood Island, The Brides of Dracula, 
Curse of the Werewolf, The Evil of Frankenstein, and Die, Die, My Darling, just to name some of the highlights. Die, Die, My Darling is an excellent flick, I might add. Um, Anthony passed away September 30th, 2013, at the age of 91. Now, that's a nice full life. And again, much like the other two names, left a an amazing legacy behind. Uh, cinematography by Jack Asher. And he, too, connected to a lot of Hammer films, but he also worked on films like Helter Skelter in 1949 and The Good Die Young in 1954. And that was before becoming a regular with Hammer horror, and after that, that's pretty much what he primarily did was the Hammer films. Uh, the music score, the amazing music score for this movie was done by the one and great James Bernard. Only 39 composer credits, but I do have to highlight that some of those are the best films to come out between 1957 and 1974. And we're talking films like The Curse of Frankenstein, The Damned, The Kiss of the Vampire, The Gorgon, The Plague of the Zombies, The Devil Rides Out, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. That last one I mentioned, you can actually stream the full score for that on Spotify. That one is on there. And also, I believe, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula, I believe, is also in its full entirety on Spotify. In 1997, he did something that was really cool. Uh, the original 1922 Nosferatu, Nosferatu silent film. Much of the original score by Hans Erdmann was lost. It was gone. Um, just be- because a lot of the times when it was per- when when the movie was performed in theaters, it was a live band that played the music. So there, the score was never actually attached to the film. Um, so when years went on and they brought the film back through, you know, various like um, uh, what do they call that there, where it's like. They, well, they re-release it. Remaster. That was the word. It just wasn't coming to mind. Uh, when they re- would, would remaster Nosferatu and whatnot, um, the score was lost. So in 1997, James Bernard got to put his own idea of a score to the film. And it's probably one of the more well-known versions, actually. Um, and you can buy that score on... Vinyl and CD, I believe it was released through. Um, I think it was Light in the Attic. I don't know if they still have copies of it, but I know Light in the Attic at one point did have the soundtrack on vinyl. We're going to move on to our starring cast, our cast of players, our cast of actors. I took the important ones. Um, there's a lot of names attached to this movie, and I didn't realize it was such a, a vast list, but there was. So I took the important ones. Primarily the first two, but there's more. <laughs> so anyways, yes, we'll get right into the cast. Let's start off with Peter Cushing as Dr. Van Helsing. He's a classic actor known for Grandma Tarkin in Star Wars. Yeah, I know. Okay. So <laughs> let's get that out of the way um, because he's done a lot of shit. Um, but I do know that, like, especially within this current generation of, you know, moviegoers and whatnot, if they're going to know 
Peter Cushing. It says Grandma Tarkin. I get it. You know, a lot of it's Star Wars is definitely in a huge boom right now. Disney Plus has been pushing the shit out. You know the name Peter Cushing. You know him from Star Wars. However, he was also Victor Frankenstein in The Curse of Frankenstein and all the subsequent sequels. He's played Dr. Van Helsing in several of the Dracula films. He was Dr. Terror in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 1965. He's been Dr. Who. Uh, He's been Sherlock Holmes. He was Dr. Wells in Horror Express. And he was Dr. Pope in And Now the Screaming Starts. He was also Dr. Lawrence in The Ghoul. And he was in other great films like Scream and Scream Again, Dr. Fibes Rises Again with Vincent Price, and he was in The Creeping Flesh. He has 131 titles to his filmography. He's been in a lot of iconic roles. Yes, I know, there's the Grand Moff Tarkin thing. But he's he's been a lot of characters in a lot of different films. Um, Peter passed away in 1994 at the age of 81. And I will note, that was probably one of the first deaths in my teen years that actually hit me. Um... Because as I've said with the double chiller thrillers, many a Saturday afternoons were spent with Peter Cushing. Um, He was in a lot of those Hammer films that I saw on Channel 20 as a, you know, a young kid and an early teenager. So by the time 1994 came around and he passed away at 81, I was feeling the burn on that one. That one hurt. And I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a Star Wars fan. Obviously, I loved him as Grand Moff Tarkin. Our Count Dracula was played by Christopher Lee. Oh boy, here's a name I get to talk about. Christopher Lee, 286 acting credits. But how do you approach this one? And you know, I had to think about it because I didn't want to do this traditionally. I didn't want to do it like, well, he's been in this movie and he's been in that movie and blah, 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 blah. I was like, how the fuck am I going to approach Christopher Lee? And then it hit me. I remembered There's a meme that has made several circulations around the internet. It's been on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's been everywhere. Everyone always posts it, especially on the day that he passed away. So I'm going to quote from that. This is Christopher Lee. Basically in this little nutshell. He was Dracula. He was a Bond villain. He was Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes. He was Death. He was Lucifer. He was Count Dooku. He was Saruman. He was Lord Summer Isle. He recorded a heavy metal concept album about Charlemagne. He hunted Nazis during World War II. He was part of a secret agent unit called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And when Peter Jackson told him to imagine how a man being stabbed in the back sounds, he told him, I don't have to imagine it. Christopher Lee was fluent in English, Italian, French, German, and Spanish, and was moderately proficient in Swedish, Russian, and Greek. And let's really stick this one to you. He was also alive during the last public execution in France. He was in the crowd when it took place, when the guillotine beheaded a man in 1939 he passed away june 7 2015 at the age of 93 but christopher lee lives on immortally 
through the amazing legacy he left behind. Christopher Lee is a name that sci-fi fans, horror fans, comedy fans, doesn't matter what genre you follow, you know the name of Christopher Lee. This man, he will live on well past the existence of any of the rest of us because of this legacy he's left behind. That's how amazing he is. And I realized when I when I was approaching this one, I was like, how the fuck am I going to approach this? Because this is a guy that, like, I can't just say, well, he was in this movie and that movie. No, no, no. I had to do it differently. And I was like, there was that meme that was going around. And I looked it up and I wanted to quote that. Moving on to now, Michael Goff as Arthur Holmwood. And let's be honest, how do you know Michael Goff? You know him most famously as Alfred Pennyworth to Michael Keaton's Val Kilmer's and George Clooney's Batman. He was also in other films, though. But pretty much, if you know Michael Goff, you know him as Alfred, um, who apparently was also Barbara Pennyworth's uncle. Yeah, I didn't didn't like that storyline either, but apparently Batgirl was related to Alfred. Um, Yeah, I didn't like that. But anyways, uh, he was also in other films, though. He was in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. He was in The Skull. He was in Crucible of Horror, The Legend of Hell House, Satan's Slave, uh, Top Secret with Val Kilmer. Um, Yeah, Top Secret was that movie that it was... uh, Kind of like how they did like Hot Shots and Airplane and all those different movies that they mocked certain things. Well, Top Secret mocked the spy movies of like the 50s and 60s. Anyways, he was in that and it was with Val Kilmer. Later on, he would be with Val Kilmer again in Batman Forever. And also, I thought it was worth mentioning, Michael Goff has also been in several episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, I believe he was in three of them in 1966 and three episodes in 1983. So, yeah. But he's Alfred Pennyworth. Actually, to see my favorite Alfred, though? That's the thing, because I did like Sean Pertwee's version in Gotham. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. He's definitely one of the better ones. Let's put it that way. Let's put it this way. Michael Goff in the Batman films was probably the most consistent actor that we all loved. Aside from, like, let's say Michael Keaton and whatnot. But in terms of all four films, probably the one consistent where I was like, okay, he's not bad. <laughs> as for the rest of it, well. Uh, moving on to Melissa Stribling as Mina. She was a character actor who played in many British TV shows. Their list is pretty long for in terms of TV. Uh, this was probably her most famous role to date, though. And she was also in the films uh, Crucible of Terror in 1971. Um, actually, that was both the only other one that was notable. Uh, she played the character of Joanna Brent. Like I said, a lot of TV acting. Um, Carol Marsh as Lucy. Lucy Homewood. Um, she was more famous in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, she was in films like Alice in Wonderland in 1949, which if you've ever seen that, creepy. Um, <laughs> I, it was live action actors with like stop motion puppets. And I know it's not intended to be creepy, but it kind of is. Um, I've only seen it once and I know I saw it years ago, so... It's one I might even, if I can find 
a version of it, might revisit it just to sort of refresh in my memory just how creepy it was. I just remember being creeped out by it. Um, she was also in movies like Helter Skelter, and she was in A Christmas Carol in 1951. Uh, but in terms of the horror genre, this was pretty much it. This was her only uh, run-through in the horror genre. John Van Eysen as Jonathan Harker. 53 acting credits, but this was his only horror acting credit. Interestingly enough, though, later in his years, he became chief production executive at Columbia Pictures in the UK, and he was known to be sort of mingled with Ingrid Bergman. Um, He was her companion in the later years. I have two left. Two left, guys. Valerie Gaunt as quote-unquote, this was her, her credit. She was Vampire Woman. Uh, this and The Curse of Frankenstein were her two biggest acting gigs out of a total of four. She was in four things, two TV appearances, two movie appearances, and this is one of the two. She's the vampire woman that like approaches like Jonathan Harker, and she's like, oh, please save me. He's trapping me in here, and you find out she's a vampire. Um, so that's her. It's, it's funny because her face is very popular when talking about this movie, yet, like I said, four acting credits. She didn't really go further on in the whole acting field. And finally, Charles Lloyd Pack as Dr. Seward, primarily known for TV acting, uh, though he was in films like Curse of the Demon, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Cover Girl Killer, and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. The runtime for this movie is one hour and 22 minutes long. The film is not rated. Though it does contain scenes of violence, blood, and frightening and intense scenes. Oh no, everyone's scared. The budget for the film was 81,000 British pounds. Okay, so I sort of did the math on this. This is, keep in mind, also current figures, so... Roughly 81,000 British pounds, if you were looking at today's inflation rates and whatnot, is about 92.5 thousand US dollars. The box office gross was 25 million US globally. Uh, That's according to Jimmy Sangster, the screenwriter of the film. The synopsis? Yeah, fuck it. (laughs) I'm skipping the synopsis this episode because of two reasons. Okay, there's two reasons why I'm skipping them. Number one, I did this synopsis for Dracula last year when I reviewed the 1931 adaptation. So if you really don't know the story of Dracula, go back and listen to that episode. But number two, because honestly, you should know the story of Dracula by now. I mean, come on. The Count of the Undead is a vampire who wreaks havoc upon beautiful ladies like Mina and Lucy, and eventually faces off against Van Helsing. So yeah, no synopsis is needed this week. As a matter of fact, I just wasted, what, 30 seconds to a minute talking about this? (laughs) I should have just read the synopsis. For the next segment of the show, let's call this the Sensational Shock and Thrill Show, because that's what it says on the tagline on the poster. And if you are wondering, okay, because I know I said earlier, this movie is called The Horror of Dracula, Horror of Dracula, whatever, but it's also a remake of the original horror film known as Dracula, which in turn was an adaptation of the Bram Stoker's novel. 
And you're asking, well, why is this one called Horror of Dracula? Well, that was because it was to avoid confusion with the other one. And the reason why, apparently this was a huge concern, because people apparently were stupid in the 50s, I guess. I don't know. But they couldn't discern between Bela Lugosi's 1931 Dracula and 1958 Christopher Lee Dracula. So they changed the name of this movie to Horror of Dracula in the United States. Like I said, I guess they thought people were too stupid and couldn't tell the two movies apart. Um, speaking of Christopher Lee, now here, this is something to think about, and I do talk about this later on as well. In this movie, he has 16 lines of, of dialogue in the entire film. 16 lines. That's it. Uh, sorted from snarls and hisses, as they were quoting it in the article I read. He never actually speaks to anyone in this movie except Jonathan Harker. That's it. Doesn't talk to anyone else. This isn't Francis Ford Coppola's version where he's out there courting Mina and all this other stuff. He 16 lines, and they all go to Jonathan Harker. On top of that, he's only on screen... For a total of seven minutes. That's seven minutes out of the 82-minute runtime. That's it. And still... Seven minutes, 16 lines, only talks to Jonathan. And this is still one of his more famous roles. I'm pretty sure the sequels had a lot to do with that. But, anyways. It's one of his most famous roles. And let's finish that off with... It's also worth noting... That he didn't play Dracula again in a movie until eight years later. So 16 lines in seven minutes to one character. He has, you know, I, I mean, obviously the seven minutes of screen time, he's with other characters, but he doesn't speak to them. And this would go on to be one of his most iconic roles that would lead to him returning for the sequels amongst many other things he's done in his career. When you think about the numbers, it's like, how? But it's because his presence on screen is just that fucking demanding. That is awesome. And as for Peter Cushing and his Van Helsing character, well, he doesn't show up in the movie until the 25-minute mark, and yet he was the top-billed actor of the film. His name come, comes before Christopher Lee's. And he didn't show up in the film until 25 minutes. And on top of that, this is the first time that both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee would be top billed together in any theatrical film. The last time that would happen was the Satanic Rites of Dracula in 1973. But also, they were in, if I remember correctly, it was two films before this where the two of them showed up. And, oh shit, I should have written down those names of those movies. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, not coming to me. Uh, we'll move on. But anyways... They were in two films prior to this, but this was the first time they would be both top billed. And one doesn't show up until the 25-minute mark of the movie, and the other one has 16 lines of dialogue. Go figure. That's how iconic these two guys are. I'm just going to say that. Um, also, here's a little bit of trivia for you. That's something that some people don't tend to think about, but they weren't on the screen together, obviously. But both would also be in Star Wars films later on in their careers. Peter Cushing, obviously, original Star Wars movie is Grand Moff Tarkin. Don't forget that our Count, Count Dracula, Christopher Lee, was in two Star Wars films, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, as Count Dooku. 
So that's an interesting little bit of trivia as well. Now, let's talk a bit about Terrence Fisher. Because when he was directing his iteration of Dracula, he added a sexual subtext to Dracula's seduction of female victims. Um, This was pretty much the first time this would actually be done this way, like within this... And within the amount of con- context that he did, um, it, because in his view, Dracula preyed upon sexual frustrations of the woman of his woman victims. Um, he viewed Mina as an unhappy and sexually frustrated housewife. Which, if you sort of think about Francis Ford Coppola's version, sort of fits as well. Um, and she wanted to get sexual release, so she has this relationship with Dracula that would allow that to happen. And as I was just saying about the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation of the story, this movie was an influence to so many Draculas that followed because as much as Bella Lugosi's did have sort of a sexy approach to him, he was more vicious than he was, you know, like romantic. Uh, and where this this was that first time where we sort of saw, you know, a Dracula with a little bit of a romantic spin on him. Um, and I'm also going to add this because this is something that I've always found interesting and was something I found on my own. I didn't need the Internet to tell me this because it's one of those little Easter eggs that was an Easter egg that wasn't an Easter egg. But if depending on when you watch this movie... It may be an Easter egg to you. I remember, I think it was Tom Savini who once said, an old movie is not an old movie if you're seeing it for the first time. That's a very good way of looking at things. So if you saw this before seeing The Exorcist, you think The Exorcist gave a nod to this film. If you see it the other way around, you think this movie gave a nod to The Exorcist. Anyways, it might be noted that Pazuzu makes a small cameo in this film... Uh, you can be the the statue of the the demon can be spotted when Jonathan Harker first meets the count, and that was something that I noticed. Um, I do believe I saw this after The Exorcist, so I always considered it being a nod to The Exorcist until I got a bit older and realized the time frames that the movies came out. But yeah, it is what it is, and I will finally say before moving on to the quick eight. That this is touted by many as one of the best British horror films ever made. I noted that because just last episode I was talking about Hellraiser and how Hellraiser is considered one of the best British horror films ever made. So, which is it, guys? No, um, anyways. On to the quick eight. I told you I'm going to be doing this from now on. This is the quick eight points of the film that I take from it. So whether I like the movie or not depends on whether this is all praise or it's all criticism. In this case, like I said, I, I'm in love with this movie. So there's not a whole lot of criticism, guys. But I will say this. Number one, while The Curse of Frankenstein was the first Hammer film in the horror genre, it was the one that started off the whole horror boom that hammer films became known for this was my first taste of the hammer horror catalog this was the first movie i started with and what a film to start with now granted i did mention i saw it during afternoon broadcast channel 20 double chiller thriller you know that's when i saw i don't remember what the second film was for all i know this might have even been the second film i don't remember where it came i just remember that's where i saw it for the first time 
And, you know, some of the violence and the blood's been edited out, you know, seeing it on network television and whatnot. But again, there's not a lot of gore to this movie to begin with. So how much they actually edited out, you keep in mind, you're asking like 12 year old me to remember this. You know, this is 35 years later, guys. I don't honestly remember. <laughs> but um, the thing is, is what I will say is this movie did leave a mark. It it was a, a Dracula film that I saw that wasn't Bela Lugosi's that left a mark, that left a lasting impression in a good way, I might add. But that I was like, wow, like other people can play Dracula. And I love this Dracula. This is so cool. Like I remember seeing it for that first time. And while I don't, obviously I don't remember specifics. I couldn't probably tell you what t-shirt I was wearing that day. But I do remember walking away from it going, that was really awesome. You know what I mean? So, and years later, I own the movie. I've watched the movie several times. And it, it was like, it was inevitable that one day I was going to talk about this movie. I didn't realize it would be now. There's actually something I'll mention in a bit as to why I chose this movie for this episode. But 12-year-old me, and I believe I was around 12 years old. I'm thinking that was about the time. I'm trying to remember the time frame of when Channel 20 used to have their double chiller thrillers and shit like that. It was around that time frame. And that was when I first saw this film. Point number one is it left a seriously lasting impression. Number two, the changes that are made from book to film do not hurt this film. So many times you will hear people comment on how changes from a book to a film, they make the movie less enjoyable or it's, it's the... Why call it this if you're going to change that kind of story? You know, um, we're seeing a lot of that lately with this Hellraiser movie that's coming out. People are, you know, going on about the accuracy from book to film and and how the first movie did that and stuff. This is a story. This is a, a thing that comes up a lot in this movie. There's some changes, but the changes don't really affect the movie in a in a negative way. Whether Mina or Lucy, like whether their characters were altered for this movie really doesn't hurt anything. Like, okay, the Francis Ford Coppola version, I know I go to that one. It's probably the one that's most memorable for both young and older fans. That's why I usually jump to that one. Um, but anyways, it stuck with the more proper versions of the character. Uh, characters, I should say. Um, in terms of who they were fiancés to, didn't matter with this film. The subtle changes were here in this film, but they didn't hinder the story or make it hard to watch or anything like that. Um, if anything, the biggest reaction that I have watching it now as an older person and going, oh, well, I mean, that's different, but then I move on. Like, it's not something that hurt the story anything. Um, whereas sometimes we'll see, you know, what, uh, and I'm saying this also knowing that AMC very soon is releasing their version of interview with the vampire. And I know there's already, I already know there's variations from the book to this TV show. So I'm a little hesitant to say I'm going to love it. I'm a little skeptical of it, but it might work. It might be like this. It might be one of those things where I, I watch it and I go, Oh, all right, well that's different. And then move on. In this case, that was one thing that I, I always took from this movie was even though there were differences 
from the book to the movie and from this movie to other movies, like, I mean, other adaptations and whatnot, there's differences, but they don't, they don't hurt the film. So that's point number two. Number three, that hammer look, the vivid colors, the bright red blood, the Gothic wardrobes, the gorgeous sets, the gorgeous women. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> it's all very British and at the same time, very Transylvanian, very Romanian, very Victorian. Um, and it's that look, it's that look that always helped to separate a hammer film or to signify a hammer film. You know, like you knew that's what you were watching at that moment. It was a genuine hammer film. It has that, that look, that feel, that aesthetic. Some studios have tried to emulate that look. If you remember a few years back when I reviewed Zoltan, Hound of Dracula, which I was saying, you know, I talked about this dude before, once about his dog. Well, that was the movie I was talking about. Um, I did say at one point that I had even confused that movie to be a Hammer film because it had that similar look. Now, other films have tried to get that look of a Hammer film. Some almost successful. Not always, though. Um, but it's... It's definitely a distinct look. And more times than not, you can tell a Hammer film based on what it looks like. And Hammer films influence so much that came after. Um, we even get, I don't know, I'm about to throw something out there where people can be like, I can't believe you went there, but I'm going to put it out there. We even get tribute style films to the days of the Hammer Rain. Like, okay, you have Elvira's Haunted Hills. That's a great one. And then you have Universal's Van Helsing. With Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, I went there because I actually liked the fucking movie. And, okay, maybe not so much in terms of that look. It's a very polished movie. It doesn't have the the hammer look down pat. But it's the hammer films that helped inspire that movie. So, it is what it is. And I, it was worth mentioning. Number four. Point number four. The music. James Bernard put together a beautiful score here. One that many would also look back to for inspiration when creating their scores for later productions involving the Count. Uh, there was an interview once where James Bernard basically said he composed the main three-note theme by breaking down the word Dracula down to its three syllables. So in his mind, he saw three syllables. That's He took the math of that and put, applied it to the music. And that's how he came up with the theme. Um... The approach was quite obvious and also influenced many low-budget scores that followed. Um, it's one of the classic elements of lowbrow cinema or what, what I was reading as what they call kitsch cinema. You know, the, the idea of low-budget cinema, low B-movies and whatnot. Yeah, it inspired a whole slew of those. So what? That's the thing. It's so iconic that it did inspire so much after. In 1992, Silva Screen, they did release a compact disc of the score elements, as well as narrated tracks by Christopher Lee and Bill Mitchell. But I will say, even though they released that, there's not a lot of people that really care for it. Um, we'll probably never get it on vinyl because the CD is not looked at as being something that a lot of people really care for. As a matter of fact... Discogs, which I know, take it with a grain of salt, but it is listed as a two out of five on there. So 
it is what it is. Two stars out of five stars or whatever. Yeah. A lot of people didn't really care for it, but I thought it was worth noting. If you're interested, it is out there. Point number five, the direction of Terrence Fisher, which I should also include the great editing of the film. But anyways, Terrence had a vision. And even though Jimmy Sangster's script did vary from the source material at times, this movie still works. It gave Terrence Fisher a very bright spot on his resume. It gave him a home in Hammer Films. Um, no one is overacting or underacting. Nothing seems too glaring that it hurts the film in any way. Like, it, everything is very... It's natural. For a, for a vampire film, I might add. It's a very natural-feeling film. Um, it's all the perfect blend. Uh... And I, I should say, the editing of the film that was done by Bill Lenny and the production design of Bernard Robinson, under the vision of Terrence Fisher, all of this comes together, and it works beautifully. It makes for a solid 82-minute movie. I will say, okay, so slight criticism here. The second act slows down a little bit. I'm not going to lie. It does. It does slow down maybe a little too much. Nothing that really causes any frustration with the film, but it does slow down a little. The final act, though, is so fucking wonderful that the mid part can easily be forgiven for its minor lagging. Because, like, the final act, especially because these movies, Hammer Films, they never had, like, long credits at the end. It was, like, basically, like, ending, the end, close scene. <laughs> um, it, you're not sitting waiting for five post-credit scenes like you are in a Marvel movie or anything like No. Hammer films, they end, they're done. Um, but the final, like, five minutes of the movie is just amazing. Uh, it's really cool. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have time to go into full details about it, but the uh, what they call the disintegration scene where basically uh, Dracula disintegrates into ash and whatnot, the... The amount of detail they put into the the special effects for that with like red paint underneath like a white mask and stuff like that is very interesting. And then they would film it and then play it in reverse, play it forward and stuff. It's super awesome. Uh, again, great editing for what is essentially one of the better Dracula films. Three points left. Number six, Peter Cushing. Yes, I know. Many people know. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing either, but I do know that many people know him as Grand Moff Tarkin. I get it. I'd be like I said, I'd be lying if I if I didn't say that I didn't love that performance as well. I do. The way he worked off Carrie Fisher and David Prowse slash James Earl Jones, who was the voice of Vader. But anyways, the way he works off of Princess Leia and Darth Vader, how can one not fall in love with that performance? I mean it's it's awesome but even a younger version of me whenever i watched peter play the role of van helsing i would call him tarkin i was like everybody else at one point because the younger kid always loves the star wars as we get older though and this is older me appreciating so much more of the swab and swagger of his van helsing that now as an adult I don't think of Peter Cushing as Grandma Tarkin first. I think of him as Abraham Van Helsing first. Or one of the descendants, because I know he's done that too. Um, it's that more... 
<laughs> quote unquote mature side of me that sees Van Helsing as actually one of his finest roles to date. But I mean, I'm like everybody else. When I was a kid, he was Grand Moff Tarkin. He was he was the guy that you know you may fire when ready. That was what we knew him as. But you get older, you appreciate that Van Helsing performance. And in this movie, he's. Uh, he's awesome. He's amazing. I keep saying the word amazing, and I know it seems like it's a lack of better terms, but it's just, it's that iconic. Point number seven, the legacy and the influence of this movie. Everything from Cradle of Filth to, I can never say this word, but Theatre de Vampires, their music videos. Okay, like, have you ever seen the video for um, Carmilla by... Basically, theater vampires. I'm not going to try and say the French pronunciation. I can't. Uh, <laughs> but their 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 video for Carmilla is literally a hammer film in three and a half minutes, accompanying a, a song. Um, this to- this movie totally influences that uh, gothic paintings to the work of literature in comic and horror novel genre. The influence on Castlevania, whether it be the games or that beautifully animated anime series we had the aesthetic and the look of more recent films like the woman in black crimson peak um and uh (laughs) many others not coming to my dense mind at this moment but um you get my point is that this was one of the foremost influencers on so many things that followed in its footsteps i mean it's up there with lugosi's dracula movie like that iconic dracula Maybe not so much. Okay, Christopher Lee, as much as my point eight is really going to highlight that, but even though a lot of people, when they think of the traditional Dracula, they think of Bela Lugosi. This whole movie, though, inspired so many of the following adaptations of Dracula that it truly is one of the all-time greatest films in that genre. And now point number eight, probably the most important of them all, Christopher Lee, our Lord and Savior of everything. Like, is he my favorite Dracula? That's a tough one. It's always been between three for me. It's been Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, and Gary Oldman. And uh, and some some people may, yeah, okay. I get that 1992's, the the Dracula from that... It's a love and hate thing. I've seen a lot of love for it. I've seen more than enough love for it. But I have seen some hate for it. I get Okay, whatever. My thing is, is that in terms of the character of Dracula, it's always come between those three. And that's not to take away from Jack Palance or, you know, anyone else who's played Dracula. Um, Of course, I have a mind blank when I'm recording. Um, Monster Squad, Dracula. I'm going to hate myself for <laughs> Duncan Regeer. There we go. Um, his Dracula is amazing as well. Uh, d- there's been so many great iterations of Dracula. I might even go as far as to say Adam Sandler in the Hotel Transylvania movies. Ah, he's tolerable. <laughs> but okay. Again, been between these three. Was Is his Christopher Lee my favorite? I, I can't settle on just one. I can't. It wouldn't be fair to the others. Um, but for this specific review, let's get back to the review and whatnot. Christopher Lee just nails it. Okay? He just, he's both as human and monster. 
um, or as count and as fiend, you know, one mental, one, one, one minute, a gentle face. I, I threw the word minute and gentle together and you got mental, uh, <laughs> one minute. He's a gentle face. The next savage and fearsome. And he like a snap of a finger. He does it. And I mean, this was, I, I, I realized that probably when they were filming this, maybe they knew it. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. Maybe it came after this. Maybe it was before. I don't know. This was a man who was going to go on to become a legend. He's a legend in acting. Um, and his Dracula is no exception. You know, in that in that whole line of work that is going to forever cement this man as one of the best ever in motion picture. Okay, like, and maybe it, maybe it sounds like I'm just a little too high on Christopher Lee. I don't know, but. Seven minutes on screen, 16 total lines, and he made every second of it stick like glue to paper. You know, it's iconic. And okay, so I, I said, you know, like, why, why bring this movie up now? Why did I talk about this movie now? Okay, so just recently, this performance of Christopher Lee was highlighted on Shudder's 101 Most Scariest Moments in Horror. And that's only one of dozens of critics to list, you know, to create a list acknowledging that uh, as an immortal moment in time. But I mean, that came up when I was watching it and I was like, I want to do this movie. Uh, And I mean, after watching that, and that was in the, was that the first episode? There's been two episodes that they've released so far. I think it was the first one. From 101 to 89 is where I believe Christopher Lee's Dracula was mentioned. I could be completely wrong on that. I'm trying to think off the top of my head here and it's not serving me so well today. But anyways, <laughs> um, that's what inspired this whole episode to happen. Was It was because of Shudder's 101 Most Scariest Moments in Horror. I saw it listed on there and I was like, I gotta do that. And now that I'm thinking about it, actually, no, I think it was between 88 and 72 or whatever. Anyways... This film is not just loved by me. Rotten Tomatoes holds it at a 90% approval rating right now. That's out of like 40 reviews. IMDb has it at a 7.2 out of 10, with 7 and 8 being the two highest ratings. Even on Amazon, the film has a ranking of 4.6 out of 5. Like, and this is a movie, 1958. We've had how many decades swing past this? This was a time of practical effects. We've now had CGI. We've had the practical effects revival. Uh, And we've had how many iterations of Dracula since then, you know, like, and this one still holds in the very high rankings. Podcast zero rating is like this. It's a film I discovered in my earlier years through Channel 20's double chiller thrillers on a Saturday afternoon. Now, I would later see the full unedited version on DVD. Well, okay, so as unedited as it can be, because apparently there's some supposed Japanese edit out there that has yet to be fully restored or even found. I don't know. I keep hearing about that there's some Japanese cut that had... It was an extended cut. 
apparently had more footage and a bit more gore and special effects to it. I don't know. Anyways, I've seen as much of this film as is possible in the North American market. And, you know, it'd be a few years after that I was starting to clue in just how important this Count Dracula, let alone Christopher Lee, was. Like, I was starting to realize, like, holy shit, like, Christopher Lee's, like, everywhere. He's in all the films and shows that I love. And I haven't even mentioned this review, that he was in Gremlins 2, The New Batch. I didn't even mention that. And he's in that movie, and that's one of my all-time favorite sequels. Um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, two names that will accompany legends like Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, Bella Lugosi, and Lon Chaney. Um, there's still, like I said, I've already said it once this episode, these guys are still going to be well known after all of us are long gone from existence, you know, and these two, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing both starred in this, in this marvelous movie, uh, the music, the environments, the gothic aesthetic, the hammer appeal, the hammer look. It all just glows off the screen. You know, in this vivid adaptation of the timeless novel by Bram Stoker that I've talked about before. Uh, and this is, you know, this is from before a time when vampires would be pretty and sparkling. Sorry, I had to go there. Uh, when vampires were vicious and hungry for blood. But yet this one did it with a sex appeal. You know, the film looms of dread and at the same time oozes of what I call provocative screenshots. You know, one of the better progenitors of the vampire catalog. Sounds like I'm stroking this movie a little too hard. Well, that's because this movie is almost perfection. Um, Aside from it being a tad bit slow during the second act, I have a hard time giving this movie much criticism at all. I mean, even coming up with just a ranking out of it, it's like, it's nine cloves of garlic out of ten. It's nine holy water vials out of ten. Nine crucifixes out of ten. Nine vampire coffins out of ten. You get where I'm going with this. I could do this all day. This movie's impactful. It's inspiring. It's lush. It's gorgeous. There's Everything is gorgeous about this movie. It's almost a perfect movie. How could I give it anything less than a nine? Honestly, how could I? I I couldn't, you know, and that's, it's a nine. If it wasn't for the fact that the second act just slowed down just a little bit, it would be a perfect 10. And I'm sure there's people out there listening right now going, the movie is a 10, dude, you need to stop. But I mean, and this is me being at my most critical because I'm trying to find something to pick up on this movie about. And it was like, this movie's not giving me anything. And it was when I got to the second act, I'm kind of like, okay, well, it slows down a little. It's a lot very talky. But it's not like the dialogue is anything that's boring. Like, I'm not sitting there yawning or like, "Eh, why don't these guys stop talking? I mean, you can sit there and listen to Peter Cushing talk all day. Like, he's just got one of those voices. It's not Vincent Price voice, but it's he's easy to listen to. Um, He's got that... What did I see? Someone the other day, I saw a comment online where someone wrote that certain voices have the Morgan Freeman appeal. I was like, it's a good way of putting things like just voices that you could just listen to forever and you'd never get sick of hearing them. Uh, 
Peter Cushing's one of those guys. Christopher Lee was one of those guys. Just unfortunately in this movie, he only talks 16 times. Um, yeah, on that note, and I've talked a lot myself. And I got to thank you all for listening. I got to thank you all for coming back to the show yet again. Um, and again, I'm going to highlight, you know, algorithms on social media not making things easy this day these days i should say for podcasters and the hellraiser episode still surpassed what i expected so again there's a lot of you out there listening thank you thank you for tuning in it makes it worth it for me to do this show um the show that shows up on spotify apple Podcasts, google i what's another one i've noticed because i can sort of see like different players that are being used a lot um podcast addict and podbean seem to be two that get used a lot so that's kind of cool uh if you're listening through those platforms you know thanks for coming back and whatnot um the show can be found on social media i know i I, i'm literally that guy that should not talk about the social media aspect because i don't like social media but i kind of do i mean i enjoy posting things for people that do care and keep coming back and there are certain names i see week after week and i'm like all right you're worth it you're the one i'm doing this for you know so it's kind of cool but anyways facebook instagram twitter the show can be found there um email what lurks behind podcast zero at gmail.com if you want to go that route email still a thing guys i know a lot of people are really in tune with their apps but email is still a thing and i will also announce finally before al pacino basically tells me to shut the fuck up next week the show will be on a break i am taking one week off next week because when it returns october 2nd October 2nd, well, October 2nd, October 3rd. Within that time frame, uh, it will be the first episode in the Gateway to Halloween event for 2022. I did say I'm going to be doing family-friendly films. Um, And I'm also going to make sure that the episodes themselves are family-friendly. There will be no vulgar talk. There will be no uh, cursing or anything like that because it, it... the only way we get the youngsters involved in the horror genre is if we give them something they can consume. And what's the point of me doing gateway to Halloween event if I'm going to be fuck this and fuck that? No. So the language goes as well. These next episodes will be for family audiences. They will be G rated, (laughs) Um, maybe PG rated. But anyways, that's that i know he's itchy he's scratching over there and he just wants to say it you need to shut the fuck up shit language